Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Steve Hayes. Today we have a conversation with Taras Bik, uh, Ukrainian uh, on the front lines in Kiev, who we've talked to before. Uh, we'll talk to Taras about what he's seeing on the ground today uh, in the capital and his trip to Lviv, uh, along with other elements of the war as it's unfolding on the ground in Ukraine. In our second conversation, we talked to Tom Carrico, a missile defense expert from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, about the war taking place above the ground in Ukraine. Taras, thanks for joining us again. Good to see you. Um, Since we spoke last, which was about two weeks ago, I have had many, many dispatch members um, and friends and relatives ask how you've been. Um, So tell us, how have you been in the last two weeks? Uh, In the last two weeks, well, you know, it's difficult for us to call something weeks, dates, days, because we do not count those anymore. It's just 24th, 25th, 26th day of the war and so on. Um, the difference, I would, I would say there is still a difference because, you know, we have passed this um, feeling of shock, of despair because, the, because of the war. And we know that we have to mobilize all our efforts to win. And um, I would say it's more, our work has become much more systematic. Uh, whether it's army f- fighting on the front lines or volunteer volunteers organizing support for the army or just companies that are working, uh, it has become much more systemic and I would say kind of you know new, new normality, which is obviously not the normality that used to exist, but something that um, we have adjusted to new realities. You just used the phrase "what we have to do to win" or something close to that. If we had had a conversation on the first day of the war, when Russia's invasion first started and the shelling and the destruction was first evident, can you imagine yourself having talked seriously about winning the war back then? Or is this something that you believed all the way through? Uh, Even more, I believed in winning the war before it had begun. The uh, uh, Russians had made just serious failure that they did not analyze situation in Ukraine properly. They did not analyze um, minds of people, what's happened, attitudes of people all over Ukraine. And the um, one simple assumption is that uh, from what we had seen from 2014 is that Russians could have gone as far as local population basically allowed to do it. And you know that in by 2014, uh, there was huge Russian propaganda in eastern and southern Ukraine. And that's why when they came, it was relatively easy for them to move forward because, well, local population supported them. They did not accept the Ukrainian soldiers in position. And that's why uh, the advance of Russians in 2014 was, well, relatively successful. Uh, Now the situation has changed completely. Since 2014, we had great progress in development and uh, Ukrainians all over Ukraine, whether it's west, east, south, north, uh, they saw what's happening on the occupied by Russian by Russia territories. Uh, they saw how sharp contrast was um, the situation in like the rest of in the free Ukraine. And obviously they did not want their cities, towns or villages 
to become part of those territories. Whatever language they speak, whether it's Ukrainian, Russian, or any any other language, uh, whatever religion uh, they, they believe in, like they just wanted to be part of independent Ukraine. And this was, uh, I would say, the major miscalculation of uh, Russia. Uh, when they invaded, yes, like first, I would say, first two days, uh, I was uh, there. There was this sense of fear of what if we lose, and um, what if Russians do invade uh, Kiev? Let's let's say. I mean, uh, invasion of Kiev. I believe it was possible, but I cannot imagine what they would do in Kiev. They would stay here just I don't know for, for a week because local population just totally would not accept this occupation. Uh, but after this, you know, f- first uh, two or three days of um, doubts. It was clear that uh, we have a strong enough army to win, and it is clear that uh, Ukrainian society is mobilizing themselves behind the army to win this war. I mean, it it has to have been interesting for you to read Western media to to look at the reaction of the world to what's happened uh, over this past month, over these past um, few weeks, because if you had confidence that Ukrainians could defeat the Russian army. It certainly was the case that most Western analysts did not think that. You know, there was talk in those those first few days uh, of Kiev falling within two or three days, and you know, here we are a month later. It hasn't yet happened. Um, there are reports still today that that the Russian army is stalled or stuck some twenty five kilometers outside of Kiev. Um, and seeming to have real problems. Um, you know, I think early reports about the, the difficulties of the Russian army, some people chalked up to wishful thinking, maybe other people chalked up to very successful Ukrainian propaganda, but they're having real trouble, the Russian army. Is that, is it, are, you, are you aware of where they are and exactly the kinds of trouble. And when you read those reports in the Ukrainian press, the European press, the Western press, do they ring true to what you're seeing and hearing on the ground? Well, I mean, there is, uh, you know, that there is never so much lies as during the war, any war. Uh, so obviously each side is not given as genuine picture as, as it is. But uh, from what I see, from what I communicate with my friends on the front line, from the army, from the territorial defense, uh, the picture is, I would describe it as uh, more moderately optimistic. We should not be overwhelmed with uh, the fact that we are going to win because it's still a long, a long road to victory. Uh, it will not be easy, we realize this. Uh, but in general, we are moving, I would say, in the right direction. And this is based on... Uh, all the reports I read, all information I analyze, and uh, personal conversation with, conversations with my friends. What is day-to-day life like in Kyiv for you these days? Kyiv is a, today typically a kind of city under war. Well, we, um, we hear all the time explosions, especially, for example, in the western part of Kyiv, wherever my house is. Uh, we, um, the, the, there are very few people on the streets. The many checkpoints, many obstacles. Uh, so it's like typical uh, city under war. And actually, you know, uh, last week we had a long curfew, which was like for up to 40 hours. And uh, so I used this opportunity to travel to Lviv, a Western Ukrainian city, for the first time since the beginning of the war. And I was, frankly speaking, a bit shocked because when I went out of the train, uh, it was, you know, life is normal. And after 20 days in Kiev, real city in war, and I looked at Lviv, 
So people were walking around, uh, businesses are functioning, uh, traffic jams, like normal, normal ordinary life. Um, so first I was shocked, but um, then I have to, had to, uh, several meetings with people who organize um, humanitarian support for people, uh, who accept IDPs. So um, I, I saw that like, actually, uh, despite this you know, general picture that it's like normal life, uh, entire Lviv is mobilized as well to help IDPs, to help army, to organize different types of support. So entire Ukraine is working on helping, um, helping the army. And actually, going back to Kiev, I would say that there are some, I would say, some signs of normality that are appearing uh, in the last several days. Because you know, the first several days, I would say, two weeks were really dangerous, and now it's becoming, I would say, a bit more safe in the city. We see that more people are coming back to Kiev. Uh, so it's like very few, but still, there are some uh, restaurants and cafes which were opened. Uh, so, like some some signs of normality are returning to the city, but it's still. Um, typical city in uh, in a state of war. And just for our listeners, uh, Lviv is, is in western Ukraine. Um, about how long did it take you to get there on the train from Kiev? Uh, usually the train ride is, I mean, in normal times between uh, five and eight hours. It's the normal uh, time for the train. Uh, this time it was uh, over 13 hours, so it was the longest trip uh, I have ever traveled between Kiev and Lviv. Because when we were about when, when we were about to leave, the air siren rang, and we had to stay to wait because the train cannot move during the air siren uh, the the um, signal. And so oh, the the sirens, sure, yeah, sure. Uh, and then you just have to hold in place when that happens. Yes, basically we were about to depart from the railway station, but uh, the sirens uh, were like really loud, and uh, we had to stay for over two hours until the, um, uh, there was another siren that it's safe to travel now. Yeah, let me let me ask you about the the sirens. Um, when I was covering the war in Iraq, this is back in two thousand three, and I was um, staying for most of the war in Kuwait in Kuwait City, and we would venture up into, into Iraq. Um, we, you know, at the very beginning, when I first arrived, you heard those, those air raid sirens and they were alarming. They were worrisome. You paid very careful attention to them. And anytime you heard them, you scrambled to get to shelter. Or in our case, we put on chemical and biological weapons suits and gas masks and, and these things because we were so concerned about uh, weapons of mass destruction being used. And then as the war went on, you heard these, these sirens, these air raid warnings, and you didn't react that way. You almost got used to it. Is that happening now or, or not? Yes, absolutely. This is happening. And yeah, this is a problem because you know, after 26 days, uh, people just got tired of running all, all the time under shelters. And um, quite often you, you just see when uh, the siren is ringing, you just see that people are continue walking as if nothing is happening. So unfortunately, yes, this is the case and it's happening. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing to, to fight off because you just grow somewhat accustomed to it. I also have to imagine that because it seems as if the Russians are, I think in some cases, targeting these shelters, places where people are sheltering, going to the shelters may not give you the sense of security that now that you might have assumed they would at the beginning of the war. Is that, is that fair? Uh, yes, absolutely. Even though Russia claims it is uh, targeting only 
military objects. Uh, we have seen that this is absolutely not true. The One of the most brutal attacks by Russian was carried out in the southern Ukrainian city Mariupol, which is heroically fighting the seas around the city. And um, so uh, there, there is local drama theater uh, where hundreds of uh, women, children, just hundreds of red local residents were hiding. Um, and uh, moreover, uh, owners of this uh, or like administration of these, uh, this uh, theater wrote uh, in a big uh, letters in, in, on two sides of the theater, uh, very big four letters, Geti, which is children in Russian. Uh, so, I mean, any plane flying over uh, the, the, this uh, theater, they could, they obviously they saw it. Still, there was a direct attack by, by a jet and the, the theater was totally destroyed. Uh, fortunately, almost all of the people there somehow survived. It's, it's kind of a miracle that uh, almost nobody was hurt because the fear was uh, like up to a thousand people could have died. But since, since they were in the basement, they, they managed to survive. And uh, this is absolutely, we see the tactics of Russia. They're not, you know, fighting the army. They are fighting the civilians, children, just brutally killing them. And what they want to achieve, since they, they have realized they cannot beat Ukrainian army in a fair struggle, they have decided to scare the Ukrainian people, scare the Ukrainian authorities, uh, so that we agree to some um, peace treaty, let's, let's put it this way, which would be very... Um, uh, unbeneficial for us and uh, obviously this is uh, like uh, very brutal tactics but still they use it and uh, thousands of civilians uh, have died as a result of this tactics. Uh, I want to go back to your trip to Lviv when you eventually got to Lviv after a 13-hour train ride um, what did you do there why did you make the trip? Well I came to see my family um, because they moved to Lviv uh, I moved them to Lviv before the war uh, so for my first target was to see my family, and uh, then we I'm I'm kind of you know doing this uh, volunteering, organizing um, a lot of support for the army for territorial defense units, and in Lviv there are like huge number of people, including foreigners, who are helping as well, and uh, we had several meetings on how to systemize those activities, how to create some additional uh, flows of support to Kiev. And actually, basically, when I, I returned by minivan, we had a huge van of uh, different uh, stuff for the army. And uh, come, we went by, back to Kiev by car. Once again, it was the, the, one, the, the longest trip to Kiev because usually we have a good road between... Uh, Kiev had had a good road between Kiev and Lviv. But uh, at one point, it was destroyed. And uh, so now we had to bypass, which took quite a while for us. Um, so, uh, like the, the second, so the first aim was to see my family, uh, and the second aim was to organize additional support for the army, which is now uh, fortunately uh, working well. And how, how was it seeing your family? Well, I made, I made a surprise for them. I didn't tell them, so they were really happy to see me. They, uh, they must have been. Yes, they must have been. Uh, the only thing I just uh, was trying to convince for quite a while my wife and my son to move to Poland. Uh, they re refused for quite a while, but, uh, well, I talked to my son. I just explained to him, uh, it's not forever. It's, um, I just tried to convince him this is a kind of, you know, a trip, like touristic trip so that he will see Poland and, you know, just relax a bit. Um, so they, they were still refusing, but I have almost convinced them. And the day after I left, uh, a missile strike was carried out on Lviv, actually, on the city of Lviv. 
It was yes. the first attack, not only in this war, but the first attack since the Second World War. So in 80 years, it was Calm City, and then uh, the first missile attack in, in the city. Even though it was on the suburbs of city, on industrial object, but still, you know, psychologically it was... Well, let's put it this way. It was uh, the, the, this missile. Uh, it was like a final uh, um, push to make them to, to to make them decide to move to Poland. Uh, so they they moved to Poland now, and uh, well, I feel a bit safer. When they moved to Poland, do they do you know people there? Do they know people there? Do they have a place to go, or where are they? You don't have to get be specific, of course, but. Where are they? Uh, where are they going, and how are they going to find housing and accommodations? Uh, yes, of course, I have organized everything. Actually, I'm happy enough to have uh, many great friends all around Europe. And uh, when the war began, I had some like 15 offers of uh, housing all over Europe. And uh, yeah, so they went to, to Poland because you know they speak some Polish. They um, my friend offered the, uh, their old apartment because my friend moved to. Um, house outside of the city and uh, her apartment was free so they moved to this apartment and uh, yeah so there was uh, now I talk to them every day and they say there is huge support from from the Polish people everyone is supporting different centers of support in Poland there are some two million um, Ukrainians who have fled to to Poland Um, what have you heard from them about how uh, you know, is Poland overwhelmed? Uh, is Eastern Poland um, having difficulty with food, with supplies, with water? H- how does that look from the, the Polish side of the border? Mm-hmm. You know, I have heard from several of my friends uh, in Poland, Lithuania, that uh, they are impressed by Ukrainians who come to Poland and from like first or second week, they ask not for some social assistance, but they ask for job. So they are like really trying to do something. They don't want to hang around and rely on social assistance. And this is actually really the case. Um, I see this is actually the trend because even today I have received uh, from my Polish friends information and um, kind of job opportunities for Ukrainians coming to, to Poland. So um, uh, I think the fact that we are very mentally close between, I mean, Polish and Ukraine, Poles and Ukrainians um, gives this opportunity to um, for Ukrainians to adapt quickly to the Polish society, to adapt to the business environment, and to not to be a burden for for the Polish community, but actually to do some activities, to do some work there. Going back to to Kiev, when you returned from your trip to Lviv um, and uh, reestablished yourself in Kiev, can you are, are there problems with food and water and supplies in Kiev? I, I read a, a report. Just a few days ago that supermarkets are still open and that you can go to the supermarket. The hours might not be normal hours and they might not be as well stocked as as uh, non-war time. But you are able to go to uh, a supermarket and pharmacies. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, in general, the situation is OK. I mean, uh, obviously, we do not have choice of products that we used to have before the war. But uh, in general, it's all enough. Sometimes you can see big lines in front of pharmacies and um, shops, but usually this is happens when, for example, just yesterday the, there was announcement that uh, instead of only overnight curfew, we are going to have uh, like 40-hour curfew, and that's why many people uh, rush to the shops and, and supermarkets. Uh, but uh, be- besides this situation is like more or less okay. Uh, I mean, we have sufficient amount of products, water. Um, well, because most importantly, uh, Russians have failed to um, encircle Kyiv, 
and there are enough routes to for, for supplies from all over Ukraine. Uh, actually, the when you come to Kiev, you have to stay for quite a long time, up to one hour, sometimes two hours on the checkpoints because um, well, police, police and total defense they have to check all cars, and uh, yes, like. Uh, possibility to get supplies is rather limited, but in general, we have enough of those supplies. And the checkpoints are, are very interesting. Um, in and around Kiev, it's mostly Ukrainian-run checkpoints. Is that correct? And then as you travel further outside the country, there are Russian-run checkpoints, particularly in rural areas and smaller towns where Russians have taken over. Is that Do I have that right, or is, is there something uh, that you'd correct there? Uh, well, nobody travels to the Russia-occupied uh, territories because, I mean, there were so many cases that Russians simply killed civilians, just, you know, even those who were ob- ob- obviously civilian cars, that nobody just travels in that direction. It's only, uh, well, military can, can travel there to fight, only some special humanitarian corridors are created, and even even if there is a, a, an agreement with Russians to have the special corridor, to provide either supplies to the blocked cities or to get to evacuate people. Uh, we had really many cases where when Russians attacked those buses, civilians, um, vehicles. So this this is on a regular basis. So besides those uh, like humanitarian corridors or military, well, nobody is traveling to Russian checkpoints. Yeah, I, I was. I heard a story the other day about a, a journalist who was traveling through a Russian checkpoint um, with some Ukrainians and and described a situation where the Russians were taking seizing the phones of the Ukrainians, of Ukrainian civilians, looking at the phones to see if they'd been in touch with the Ukrainian army, with the intelligence services, with territorial defense units. So I think it makes a lot of sense that people would be trying to avoid, avoid those areas. Yes, uh, even Ukrainians who uh, were living in those humanitarian corridors, for example, from the city of Mariupol, not only, uh, usually Russians just confiscated their phones when they were leaving. And in Mariupol, we had uh, e- even more um, crazy scenario when Russians uh, made uh, Ukrainian men who were leaving Mariupol uh, take off their clothes uh, to see if they do not have pro-Ukrainian tattoos, like mm. pride and like different symbols of Ukraine. And uh, well, this this is what happening on the uh, Russian checkpoints. Uh, if you were mentioning journalists, well, I don't think that many journalists are still going in those areas because, as you know, two two journalists have been killed, including an American one. Uh, one girl was um, kidnapped by Russians. Fortunately, today she was freed. Uh, and uh, for the last 10 days, uh, one week, um, one very famous Ukrainian photographer, journalist, uh, he disappeared in one of the um, uh, hotspots of uh, near Kiev. So, uh, I mean, I, I don't think that there are many journalists who, well, are uh, courageous enough to go to those places. Right, right. Um, a, a little bit about the, the information war. You know, I think Putin apologists would insist that the real propaganda effort is in favor of Ukraine. And certainly Ukraine has gotten a lot of favorable press here in the West. I would argue that that's because Russians are clearly the invaders. Um, and this is one of those situations where there are, there are good guys and, and bad guys, to use the, the parlance of the old American um, Western movies. Um, it is true that Ukraine has been very, very adept at fighting the information war. You and I talked a couple weeks ago about your president and his ability to shape the information 
environment. Um, I wonder if you think that that w- what difference that has made, and as sort of a second question, how important has the internet been as um, a tool for Ukrainians to use to resist the Russian occupation? Uh, indeed, we live in era of information, so uh, the in parallel to, to conventional war, we have informational war with Russia. Uh, well, we are, li- we are winning this war because of one simple reason, the truth is on our side. So it's much um, easier for us to communicate this, uh, what's happening. Um, so, But on the other hand, yes, Russians, uh, it's easy to communicate lies as well, but only for the Russian society. I mean, I don't think there's anyone in sound mind who would believe, uh, in sound mind, I mean, from the civilized world, who would believe uh, what Putin is saying. Um, internet had played just, I would say, decisive role uh, in the in this war because thanks to internet we are still able to communicate with one another. We are still able to use our uh, networks of uh, friends, companies, businesses to organize support for the army, for territorial defense, and so on. Um, because what we see actually today is, you know, a struggle between twenty uh, first century army technologies, uh, society, and, well, savages from, uh, I would say, 18th century. President Biden is headed to Brussels this week for an emergency meeting with with NATO and EU leaders. He seems, I think at this point, pretty determined not to provide the kind of no-fly zone that President Zelensky has requested, or even the the MiG fighter jets um, that Zelensky has requested. In your mind, what more could the U.S. and NATO and and Europe do to help the war effort? And do you have, are you following things like President Biden's trip to Brussels? Or doesn't that really matter from where you sit? No, absolutely. We are following this. Uh, I mean, uh, during the nighttime when, when I'm not uh, driving around helping the army, I'm just, uh, I communicate with my friends who are in Warsaw who are meeting all those uh, different people. We, we work on our messages, on our like campaigns, what we have to deliver. And uh, we are actually, we, we are we were preparing, preparing for this uh, visit by, by the U.S. president. We um, actually, we expect a lot of support from the U.S., from the West, because what we try to deliver is very simple message. Ukraine is not fighting only for Ukraine. Ukraine is fighting for Europe for entire Western world. And so our message is simple for Joe Biden. Help Ukraine, save Europe. Because Putin will not stop on Ukraine. You probably have heard that now they are sending the messages to Poland, quite open uh, threats of nuclear attack if um, if Poland is too active in helping Ukraine, if the West is too active in helping Ukraine. Um, it never, it's never the... Uh, you know, it's it's not the resistance that provokes Putin. It's not our counteroffensive that provokes Putin. It's only weakness that provokes Putin. And the West has to understand this. If you demonstrate, if the West demonstrate more weakness, we are certain to see further attacks by Vladimir Putin. It doesn't seem that the West does understand that. I would say, uh, if you look at the, the leadership, I mean, obviously, in many ways. The West and NATO has been as united as NATO has been in, been united for, for decades. On the other hand, um, there is a lot of talk, particularly from um, the Biden administration, 
about avoiding escalation, av- avoiding taking steps that would seem escalatory, that, that Vladimir Putin might read as escalatory. Um, it sounds like you think that's precisely backwards. Am I understanding you correctly? Um, I understand that, um, well, the approach they use is like, well, Ukraine is going to win this war without additional threats, so why, why would we threat with nuclear war if Ukraine is going to win anyway? Um, I, in my opinion, it doesn't work this way. Uh, I mean, Ukraine is going to win this war, I'm sure about it, but the price that we are already paying and the price we will pay if we do not have sufficient support, uh, which will be just catastrophic. We see the tragedies of those people. We see the um, that Russia is not going to stop. And uh, I think, you know, now we have this, um, for the first time, this huge opportunity to stop Russia once and for all, so that we do not see attacks of, of Russia, let's say, in 30, 40 years. Now this is the time to stop it. And uh, the entire world has to unite and to act very actively in this direction. I listened today to an interview with the Latvian defense minister. Latvia is a a NATO member country. And he was asked about peace negotiations and between Ukraine and and Russia, which are taking place um, sort of on and off over the past couple of weeks. And his most uh, emphatic piece of advice was that the West should avoid pushing Ukraine to accept a peace deal that is not in Ukraine's best interests. Um, is that something that, that you think about, that you talk about with, with your friends, that's a, a, a common concern in Ukraine, or is that something that's sort of broad and distant as you sort of think about how to win the war on a day-to-day basis? Yes, we should be extremely careful with signing any piece of paper with Russia because, you know, sometimes, uh, well, there's, there's this old formula that, uh, quite often, the paper, the price of the paper, a sheet of paper, is not worth uh, even a sign with Russia, um, and uh, because it will mean nothing. I mean, we understand that Vladimir Putin needs some kind of excuse for losing the war to tell his society that he actually won this war, and um, but the price for Ukraine can be too high. Um, that's why. Uh, well, we, we we do have professional diplomats in Ukraine. We do have professional minister of foreign affairs and um, all diplomats who are working on this. Um, so we kind of trust in in, in their negotiation skills. But um, still, um, we I would say we have much higher trust to Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, we believe that uh, they will continue the struggle until the, like final victory. And uh, it's Ukraine who should dictate the conditions of this treaty, not the Russia, because the Russia is the aggressor, the Russia is the invader. And most importantly, if um, what we should care about is that if we sign some kind of peace treaty, which will not allow proper reparations paid later by Russia. This is something that we should definitely avoid. Um, President Zelensky um, banned Russian-backed or Russian-affiliated political parties uh, this week. How popular were those parties? Do you expect that that kind of a ban will have much of an effect either on the prosecution of the war and the resistance or on a post-war politics in Ukraine? Uh, Well, in my opinion, those parties should have been banned uh, since 2014. Because, well, I mean, Russia has started the war not today, not this year. Russia has begun the war in 2014, 
And still we had parties which were not openly, but, but even sometimes openly, they were justifying this war and, well, were clearly allies of Vladimir Putin and allies of Russia. Uh, so uh, it's good that they were banned today. But uh, I would say this is rather a symbolic gesture because after the war, I don't think they would have that high support. Well, let me, let me ask there, and, we, and this could be my last question. We want to be mindful of, of your time. Um, let's assume, and we certainly hope that Russia withdraws from Ukraine, that the struggles that we're seeing with the Russian army um, in around Kiev and elsewhere in the country um, grow and Russia withdraws one way or another. The Putin regime obviously will never be forgiven, and I agree with you entirely on on uh, the need for reparations. What do you think the future of Russia-Ukrainian relations will be like uh, at the ground level? Um, there are, you know, we, we see interviews, we see protests in Russia, we see Russians, prominent Russians in some cases, who say that they're embarrassed for what their their country is doing. What do you expect in in post-war Russia-Ukrainian relations? You know, when I talk to my friends all over Ukraine, relatives, friends, uh, we have so much sincere hatred towards Russians that, uh, well, at least our generation and maybe next generation will not be able to forgive them ever for what's happened. It was not Vladimir Putin alone who came with the war. It was the entire army of uh, hundreds or hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, it was uh, not Vladimir Putin who, well, somehow uh, established him in power. Well, Russia had elections, not free, not fair, but those were Russians who elected him. Uh, obviously, uh, yes, we can claim that Putin elected himself, but, well, Russians did, did not protest this fact. And um, most importantly, uh, Russians have kept silence. And even today, well, absolute majority of Russians keep silence on the war on, on Ukraine. So what's happening today in Ukraine, it's not uh, only Vladimir Putin doing this. It's entire Russia doing this. Okay, maybe except for some um, exceptions, like uh, those who are, most of them are abroad, trying to protest, to protect them. Yes, but uh, besides them, it's uh, the Russian society doing this. And I'm sure it will take, uh, well, generations uh, of, uh, of Ukrainians and Russians to get along and to start uh, communicate with one another. And generation of, generations of Ukrainians, uh, when we will be able to forgive Russians for what they did. Well, Taras, thank you again for the time you've taken to speak with us today. Uh, we wish you the best, and we will check in with you again. Thank you. You're welcome. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Tom, welcome to the dispatch podcast. Well, Steve, uh, happy to be here. A long time listener. First time caller. <laughs> well, we followed your work for a long time, uh, for a long time as well. Um, and I'm excited to have you on here to, to, to share some thoughts about what's going on in Ukraine these days. Why don't we start sort of big picture and let's get, we're a, month, we're a month in, let's get your general assessment of two primary things. One, how significant is this war in terms of geopolitics of the modern world? And two, 
Um, what do you make of what's happened over the first month and Russia's progress or lack of progress, as the case may be? Well, look, I think in a in a very uh, broad sense, this is obviously one of the one of the most significant, uh, both geopolitical and military events of the past three decades. Uh, Witness the degree to which it's shifted German foreign policy and lots of other folks' uh, defense policy dramatically, o- almost overnight. Uh, this is something that, that uh, the Russians, the Chinese, the Americans, and just about everybody else are going to be studying and learning from. And maybe we can talk about some of the lessons that they may take, or hopefully the right lessons, perhaps the wrong lessons from, from all this. Uh, but obviously for, for Russia, too, uh, this is a massive, massive miscalculation. You know, as you say, we're, we're at this point uh, a month in. Uh, they've done a whole lot, and yet they haven't taken that much territory. Uh, just massive miscalculation on the part of Putin. And you know, with the sanctions and the internal politics and all this kind of stuff, massive pressure on the Russian economy and uh, uh, amazing uh, deaths on the part of the, the Russian military. I think the Ukrainians released a figure of like 15,000 Russians killed. And the Russian Russians came out and said, oh, no, no, it's not that bad. It's only 9,800 yeah. <laughs> plus 16,000 wounded. Astonishing. Astonishing. I think I think it's it's hard at this point to overstate the the significance of of this and something I think um, some in the United States were a little was a little late late to to come to that conclusion. Um, but now that it's clear that Putin is not um, interested in a quote unquote minor incursion, as uh, as the president said uh, a few weeks before the war, I think it's uh, its import has become more evident. Um, a common theme in the speeches of President Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky from the very beginning is that he wants to be able to close the skies, quote unquote, close the skies over Ukraine. Is that possible? Well, let me just, let me uh, take the two things you said. First of all, the, the not doing enough early enough, not being taken seriously. I think that's uh, an important point. The Biden administration didn't do enough early enough. And then once the intel reports started rolling in, to their credit, they started doing it. But, of course, it was too little too late. Of course, this is also something that the, uh, that the Trump administration had been dealing with back from 2014 onward. And the Trump administration, to its credit, sent a small number, I would say a token number of javelins, uh, admittedly with the, the requirement that they be kept in the barn, and I have to say, a- after President Trump tried to essentially extort the Ukrainians to do his domestic political dirty work. Yeah, so the, so the, the, the domestic side here at home, in terms of uh, not taking it seriously enough and not doing enough early on, uh, plenty of blame to go uh, all around. But uh, likewise, on, uh, now here we are today, you're bringing up the can you close the skies thing, because... And we, we saw this in a, the New York Times article this morning, really had a remarkable uh, interview with an unnamed uh, Ukrainian pilot. They've got like 50, 55 jets left or something like that. And he says, look, I'm going up every day. Uh, I, I know that I'm going to run into trouble up there. And of course, he doesn't know if, if he's coming back. An amazing thing that the Russians have not, a month in, achieved what the, uh, what the kids in the Pentagon call air superiority. Yeah. That there's still uh, Ukrainian jets flying that there's still Ukrainian air defenses that are operational to some extent. And there's this push to give uh, MiGs, MiG-29s from Poland to, to, to the Ukrainians. I don't think that's going to happen, I would say, unfortunately. Uh, but 
it's it's amazing. Everybody expected from the U.S. and otherwise that the Russians would take the place in 72, 96 hours, something like that. Uh, and it, it's been a huge failure of their ability to cl- to close the skies of Ukrainian jets and Ukrainian air defenses. Uh, and so that's one of those lessons that will be studied for a long time. Why have the Russians been unable to do this? This was a this was baked in. Every analysis you read of this war in the days before the war, in the early days of the war, the the working assumption of virtually everybody was that the Russians would be able to do this and do this almost immediately, and they have failed. Why have they failed? But of course, in no small part, uh, the fact that they went so quickly into Crimea in 2014 was a a reason for that kind of assessment. Uh, I'll say there's a handful of of, uh, explanations for that. And I don't think we're going to know for some time which of them is the, the, the most compelling. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it's, it's bad planning, it's the reliance upon conscripts, it's the morale issue that's being reported among Soviet troops, the fact that they don't have enough food uh, or, or kit and all this kind of stuff is kind of compounding. You know, there's other folks that are talking about, uh, you know, whether it was the, the mud and the cold and, you know, again, reports today about the, uh, some a large percentage of Russian troops suffering from hypothermia. So I think all these kinds of factors are going in. But at some level, it certainly looks like some really bad planning on the part of, of the Russian military. And I, I guess I worry a little bit that that, that can make us overconfident. Uh, this is going to get worse, and it's going to get uglier. Uh, more and more people are comparing it to the Grozny type of situation or Syria. I mean, the, the, the pictures of the, the rubble and the burned-out apartment buildings, we're going to see more of those as they continue to fire lots and lots of stuff in there. So it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, but it's, it's, and it's astonishing the, the degree of, uh, of prolonged uh, agony at this point. But particularly or specifically on air superiority, I think the, the, the working assumption, again, both from people who really know this well and from people who don't, like me, uh, to, to, to use a very sophisticated military parlance that, that I was using at the beginning of this, my assumption was that they would bomb the shit out of uh, Ukraine and immediately establish dominance. And they just didn't do it. Why, speaking specifically about air superiority, why have they been unable to do it, to do that? It may have been, again, lots of speculation here. It's hard to get inside the mind uh, of the Russian general staff here, uh, but it may have been that they were overconfident about their their ground forces. Uh, it is it is surprising, you know, with the United States, the American way of war. What's the first thing we do? We go in there and we try to establish air superiority, so we own the skies. We we take out in everybody's air defenses, and perhaps the Ukrainians were successful at hiding and moving things around. In which case, this is going to be an important lesson for uh, distributed operations. Uh, it's a big place, after all. Uh, maybe they kept off uh, uh, sufficient of their air defenses. They weren't radiating energy, so you couldn't lock onto them. Things like that. Uh, again, I don't think we know just yet, but it certainly appears to have been a, 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 a critical ingredient to the, the, the problems and the losses they've had so far. Yep, that New York Times article you mentioned, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, fascinating um, and, and in some ways inspiring article. Uh, the The... Reporter wrote, one of the biggest surprises of the war in Ukraine is the, the Russia's failure to defeat the Ukrainian Air Force and the, the rough um, data that they 
provided was that the Ukrainian Air Force was flying 10 sorties, five to 10 sorties to every 200 by the Russians. Do you expect that at some point Russia will be able to, in effect, snuff out the Ukrainian Air Force? I mean, that, I will say again, my amateur read was that that's what I'm sort of anticipating. This guy's very courageous. Yeah. Um, what he's doing is unbelievably admirable, fighting for his country. But that if we take a realistic look at this, it's not likely to last. Right. I mean, that's just a, a function of, of basic mathematics that this will be attrited. And probably, well, nobody, I mean, nobody would accuse me of having a firm grip on basic mathematics. So, <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. But, um, but yeah, when you're only talking about 50, 55 plus all, so, so much overwhelming force, potential overwhelming force on the part of the, of the Russians, it certainly doesn't look that great. But this is why, of course, the Ukrainians are begging, begging for uh, those MiG-29s. Uh, and unfortunately, it's kind of gotten snagged, I would say, in this thing between the Poles and big NATO and the United States. Uh, but it also, I think you can kind of both understand why they're begging for NATO to come in and do a, a no-fly zone. It's impractical. The United States is not going to pick a fight directly with Russia. We're already kind of walking up to the line by sending in all this, uh, uh, you know, arms and, and, and belligerent kind of stuff. Uh, so we're not going to do that, I don't, I don't believe. But you, but you do understand why they're begging because they see this, this problem coming. It's also, by the way, and this is remarkable, Slovakia uh, is going to be sending over some of its S-300, which is an old Russian older Russian-made uh, air defense system, and they're basically looking for any uh, ex-Soviet or ex-Russian kit in Eastern Europe to send over. Why? Because it's the, what the Ukrainian, Ukrainians are trained on. That's why they're asking for MiG-29s. It's what they have and are, and are trained on. You can't send them patriots and expect them to learn overnight. That doesn't work. Uh, so even the United States is pulling out some Soviet uh, air defense kit that we didn't admit that we had. We bought it or stole it from somewhere and sending it over to them. Amazing stuff. And I, this brings to mind a, a quote from the then Army Chief of Staff, General Milley, uh, now uh, Chairman of the, the Chief Staff, uh, excuse me, Ar Army uh, Chief of Staff, General Milley. He says, this was back in 2017, rolling out the Army's modernization strategy. And he says, none of this matters if you're dead, and that's why you need air defense. And that's, you know, why the Army started recapitalizing its air defense efforts. And lo and behold, this episode has shown the value of that in spades. Yeah, absolutely. What, what, how would you assess the state of Ukrainian air defense today? Well, again, I, I, this was another Air Force general uh, the other day who was asked that question at the McAleese conference here in D.C., and asked, how are the, uh, the, the, the Russian air defenses? And his answer was, well, they seem to be doing pretty well as long as they're operated by Ukrainians. It's a little <laughs> bit triumphant. Uh, and again, they, they have the challenge of, of numbers that you highlighted before in terms of the aircraft and also these things. It's, it's going to be great if we can get the uh, uh, S-300s from, from our warehouse and from the Slovakians and these other that, That's going to be great. But again, the numbers are still going to be limited. Uh, I will say it's also uh, hopeful that the, the Russian troop morale seems to be uh, leading them to literally abandon some of their, I'll just say, lower-tier air defenses, Pantsir and some other things that they have. Uh, they're just walking away from it. And one, the other news story today is that they just abandoned like a high-end, primo uh, Russian electromagnetic warfare truck 
uh, without getting into details, that's going to be an extreme prize uh, for being able to weaken their their efforts in the future. What would the expectations uh, be, given what we knew about Ukrainian uh, air defense systems uh, um, before the war, that they would be able to do this for a month and then continuing? And I'm thinking here, particularly of their anti-missile systems. Uh, I think the expectations were pretty low. Uh, as of right now, uh, the Russians, as of yesterday, have fired like over 1,100 missiles uh, into Ukraine, right? It's a standoff capability. You don't have to fly over top of them. Now, whether they're actually taking out the Russian cruise missiles that are coming in or ballistic and these kind of things, I'm perhaps skeptical about that. Uh, so far, the air defenses are probably more targeted, as are the Stinger missiles against aircraft, whether it's helicopters or fixed-wing aircraft. Um, they, but they, they're certainly doing better than I think everybody expected. Uh, it's the proliferation of the javelins, the anti-tank weapons of various kinds, and then also the stingers, the anti-shoulder-fired uh, you know, uh, anti-aircraft uh, things that are get, getting out there in numbers. Those seem to be the, the well-sung hero uh, so far. But, but even the, the bigger stuff, there's, there's not a whole lot of it, but it, it seems to be playing a, playing a role. How, do, how, does the, the, how does what you call the, the bigger stuff, quote-unquote, how, how does that work? I mean, just it, it, on the most basic terms, I mean, is it really the, the Russians fire a missile and the Ukrainians have systems that intercept it, take it out of the air and render it, you know, effectively useless, but for the detritus that falls on, you know, falls on the ground? How, how does it actually work? Yeah. So, and again, I'm a missile defense guy, but I'll say uh, I'm skeptical that there's a large numbers of missiles that are actually being taken out here. Uh, so let's just, at the most simple level... It's going to be a couple trucks. One of them is going to have a missile launcher on it. One of them is going to have a, a big radar on it. And that radar, S-300, is looking in every direction. It's spinning around. It's omnidirectional. And that's looking in the sky for something flying by. And it's also kind of looking up. And so that's why it tends to be easier to see a high-flying aircraft than a really low-flying cruise missile. You, you've seen these videos of the caliber cruise missiles. They're pretty low. And so why does that matter? Because that ground-based radar, it might be on a very modestly sized tower, but it's, it's still constrained by the curvature of the earth and by any hills and terrain and buildings and this kind of stuff. So the low-flying cruise missiles are going to be really hard to even be seen, let alone, you know, once you see them to say, okay, launch some interceptors in that direction. So it's, it's a challenge. Tom, we've heard a lot about hypersonic missiles uh, in the news. and um, it seems to be a pretty big deal. Is it a pretty big deal? Oh, yeah. I, I would say, broadly speaking, uh, the full suite of, of hypersonic gliders and scramjets is, is a big deal. What we're seeing in Russia so far is actually fairly modest. Uh, what they, the, the so-called hypersonic missile, the, the dagger, the Kinzel that they fired the other day, is, is basically just an air-launched ballistic missile. Uh, for all the press that it's gotten over the past couple of days, it's actually... Uh, essentially a variant of what's called the Iskander, which is a Russian missile. It's the Persian for Alexander, as in Alexander the Great, by the way. And it's basically a somewhat maneuverable ballistic missile. So what they've done so far is not nearly so sophisticated as the headlines and the clickbait would, would lead you to believe. Uh, but I would say that, uh, putting that in, in context, 
1,100 plus missiles. So the more that they abandon their ground vehicles and the more that they uh, have trouble taking the skies, uh, they seem to have been leaning more on their uh, standoff missile capabilities, be it bombs, but especially the standoff missiles. So lots and lots of those, and it's not just the fancy hypersonic or alleged hypersonic stuff, it's the cruise missiles and the ballistic missiles. Some of those things are not so accurate, and that's why you see some of the devastation going on. But it's, you know, since this is a political show, uh, Steve, I'll I'll quote or paraphrase uh, James Carville, it's about the missiles, stupid. You know, that's, that's, that's what you're seeing so much of, and that's what you're kind of seeing folks recognize, that without air defense, without missile defense, you you're going to have a bigger problem. What, what, when you talk about sort of the higher end, uh, hypersonic missiles, if they do what they're supposed to do, how do they differ from, uh, what we've known as traditional missiles? What are the main functional differences? Right. So look, I'll just say hypersonic literally just means a speed, uh, Mach five and just about any, uh, ICBM or really any ballistic missile worth its salt is going to be screaming back in when it reenters the atmosphere at Mach 5 or quite a bit faster. But when people talk about that, what they really mean is sustained hypersonic flight. It's really at the high, relatively high atmosphere. And so you use the really high speed of a ballistic rocket booster of some kind, and then you, it's a lift-to-drag ratio. At that very high altitude, there's just enough air to keep you aloft. The space shuttle was a hypersonic glider. That's how it came back in. The X-15 of old was a, a hypersonic aircraft. So it's been around for forever. The higher-end proper hypersonic missiles that the Russians have fielded, that the, that the Chinese have are developing and fielding, and that the United States will be fielding beginning in 2023, significant range, uh, and they're going to be really mixing the maneuverability of cruise missiles with the speed of ballistic missiles but without that high lofted predictable trajectory. Right, right. Which makes them it makes it easier for them to evade these air defense systems. Bingo. Although again, I have to I have to drop a plug. We just put out a report uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, called Complex Air Defense, which is specifically on hypersonic defense. It can be done. We're just going to have to adapt to it. I I actually looked at the report <laughs> and amazingly I could understand some of it. Um, we will link the report in, in our show notes so that folks can take a look for themselves. Um, another thing we've heard quite a bit about in the last month um, is uh, the use of drones. Um, how are they being used and what effect do they have? Yeah, so really, and this is why you have to take a look at the whole uh, air and missile spectrum. It's not just about the bright, shiny object of this, that, or the other thing. It's everything from mud to space, from the, the, the low and small and slow drones to the slightly bigger ones to the cruise missiles. It's a spectrum, right? And they blur. These categories blur. The, the drones that the Iranians used to attack that oil facility in t- September 2019, you know, they were kind of the poor man's cruise missile. The, the stars of this conflict, besides the, the Calibers and the, the Kinzels uh, and the Iskanders, the other stars on the Ukrainian side have been the Bayraktar, this big Turkish-made drone, think an American Predator or Reaper, uh, but from Turkey. Uh, I mean, they've actually come up with the fascinating uh, songs and, <laughs> and ballads to the Bayraktar, uh, which you should also put in your show notes. Um, and then on the Russian side, I think it's called the Orion. And so there's lots of those basically unmanned aircraft, right, uh, that are dropping, you know, coming over top that uh, 
convoy if they can get to it or, or whatever else it is uh, and drop in some stuff. But of course, like aircraft, uh, you can shoot them down. Uh, they fly in that, uh, that altitude. So, but nonetheless, the, this is something we're going to see a lot more of, not just in Ukraine, but everywhere else. We've uh, also heard quite a bit about the possibility that Vladimir Putin will use tactical nuclear weapons, uh, particularly as he feels more and more cornered. And if his uh, ground troops are not having the success that I think he and, and uh, his generals thought that they might, if he were to use tactical nuclear weapons, uh, a couple questions. One, how would those likely be deployed? And two, what does that mean? What, what would they do if he used tactical nukes? Yeah, uh, there's a whole spectrum of possibilities here. Uh, first of all, you know, as they like to say, uh, every nuclear weapon is strategic. Uh, the, tact, the, the strategic versus non-strategic is really a function of whether or not it's governed by the, the, the START Treaty. Right. Uh, if that sounds like a tautology, it's because it is. <laughs> uh, but, but basically, they have about 2,000 and some nuclear weapons that are not governed by that treaty. The United States has a much, much smaller uh, number. Uh, and so uh, let's just take a step back and think about how that might happen. If they get embarrassed, uh, if they feel like NATO countries are pushing a little too hard. Uh, they've kind of been warning that for, for forever, right. that they could go first. Just as NATO had a first-use policy in the Cold War because we were conventionally inferior. Well, guess what? They're definitely conventionally inferior. And so it makes sense to, to lean more heavily on your, on your nuclear side. Uh, that would be a very bad day. Uh, but I, I would say it would be a very bad day even if Putin just did the following. All he really has to do is an underground nuclear test. He doesn't have to even necessarily release a bunch of radiation in the atmosphere or even kill people. It could be a demonstration somewhere. It could even be underground. And that will get everybody's attention and it will invite a uh, response of some kind from the United States. Uh, look, Putin has done more to galvanize NATO and reinforce the purposes of NATO in a 72-hour period when this thing started uh, than the past 30 years uh, post-Soviet Union had. But you do something like that, and that will certainly have a, a major response as well. But you know what? This is why the United States has its nuclear deterrent. This is why we have a, a flexible set of options. And I'm not talking about popping something off just for the heck of it. I'm saying this is, this is something that, that he could do, uh, but that it would not be taken lightly. Right, right. Um, well, let's, let's move to that to, to close our discussion. Um, again, only a month in. Um, uh, the lessons that we think we'll learn today could look very different in a month or three months or six months. But if you, if you had to say, uh, today, the lessons that the U S and Europe have learned, um, what would those be? The, the lessons that the Russians have learned and then looking a bit further, what would be the lessons for China and for Taiwan? Right. So look, uh, the Russians are already learning that they had some, some internal problems. Uh, I, I worry that the, the near-term lesson that they'll take away from this is they have to be increasingly barbaric uh, and truly uh, inhumane in, ter in terms of how they, they crush the Ukrainians. That, that could very well happen uh, in the near term. Uh, in the longer term, you know, as uh, the Russians, or medium term rather, as the Russians lose a significant piece of their military and their kit, they're gonna have to reassess. Who knows, maybe that means they, they do put even greater reliance upon their, their nuclear force. Uh, moving to the, the Europeans, I mean, I hope that the Europeans will 
that, that their resolve will be durable. And so, for instance, you know, there's some news stories out there about how not all the, I think like a fifth of the equipment that the Germans promised the Ukrainians has been delivered. Uh, and I really worry about the, the German uh, durability of the sanctions, right? They've just got so many financial incentives to, yes. to push the oops button and open things up again. Uh, so the, the Poles and the Romanians, they're going to be strong. Don't worry about that. But the, the Western Europe, uh, we'll see where, where, how durable that is. And then you mentioned Taiwan. You know, uh, going back to the air defense thing, uh, you know, what, what are the javelins and what are the stingers and what are the S-300s? What, what are the analogs to those that, that Taiwan or Japan, and I would say Guam, uh, needs to be the porcupine? You know, if the Trump administration and the Biden administration hadn't dithered so much, if they had, instead of doing too little too late, had done more earlier, uh, you know, could have de- deterred this conflict uh, as we're seeing it today. What are the things we need to do now to make uh, Taiwan such a porcupine that China doesn't want to wrestle it? Uh, in, the, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see the Biden administration release its new missile defense review. Uh, I expect Guam will have a, a place there because it's so important for U.S. power projection in the Pacific. And again, none of this matters if you're dead. and That's why you need air defense. And that's going to be a, a lesson for Guam, for Taiwan, for, for everybody else. Well, Tom, thanks for providing a lesson for us today. Uh, We appreciate your time. Uh, We learned a lot and look forward to having you back. Hope so. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 